You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you today. Happy Back to Sunday. We've done this a few years now and kind of noticed that uh, at this point in the calendar, some events kind of converge, right? We've taken July off for breakfast, and so starting in August, we come back to breakfast. Uh, school is starting up, so it's back to school. Uh, at, and with that, kind of the end of summer, people's vacation times are ending, and so it's kind of a back-to-church time. So we just decided to kind of name it and, uh, and, and market it a little bit. Um, but uh, it's kind of a standalone service. We just finished our series on Ordinary Time, uh, which was great. And uh, last week, for those of you who uh, didn't uh, catch it, was a great Sunday. Um, it was kind of like, you know those episodes of, um, I feel like every show back in like the 90s and the 2000s did it, but like uh, Friends did it, Seinfeld did it. They'd have like an anthology episode, right, where like uh, they'd all be sitting around and being like, hey, remember the time that this happened? And then they'd show a clip from that episode, and it was kind of... Uh, 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 it was a staple. I feel like they don't, shows don't do that anymore, but um, we did kind of an anthology episode last week where we looked at where we've gone from Advent through our, this point in the church calendar <clears throat> and uh, looked at all of the things that we've reflected on, all of the things that God's been working in our lives, all the things that we've been teaching, all the things that we've been learning. And so uh, it was a great time. And then next week... Uh, we're going to start our uh, Then Sings My Soul series, which we've done for a few years, um, and that's always a really good time. And so, in as much as last week, I think, was kind of a look back on what God's been doing in our church, in our lives, what God's been speaking to us through the, the calendar, I'm hoping that today can kind of be uh, a little bit of a look forward, um, a little bit of a projection, if we could, to what kind of church we're going to be in the year to come. And so uh, Robbie's not with us today. Robbie is traveling uh, to Tulsa, uh, where our good friend Dr. Chris Green is actually being bishoped in the CEEC. So um, that's a really exciting uh, opportunity for him. So uh, in, with the fact that uh, Robbie is not here, and uh, sort of in honor of Chris uh, and the way that he kind of tends to preach, uh, this might be the one. This might be the sermon that finally gets you to kind of run me out on a rail uh, today. So uh, that's sort of in honor of those, of those two things. But uh, as we saw, uh, hopefully any, uh, any uh, kind of ne- negative feelings will be received as conviction rather than provocation. And uh, no one will try and push me off a cliff. Um, as we saw today, the lectionary uh, passage from the gospel is the feeding of the 5,000. This is an interesting story. Uh, With the exception of the resurrection, it's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. Uh, All four Gospels have this story in it. And this story and the resurrection, those are the only two miracles that appear in all four Gospels. So there's something maybe to that, right? That there's uh, an importance. There's an emphasis here. There's something here that, uh, that all four communicators of the gospel wanted us to know or wanted us to see. And so uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew's version and we're going to be pulling in some of the other versions as well. And I think that with all the context of all four gospels and some of the details that are in these stories, because there's such 
uh, cherished stories, these feeding stories. I think oftentimes we pass over little details that are in them, uh, and we do that kind of to our own detriment. There's, I think, clues to what this story, what the bigger context around this story is. I've heard a thousand sermons, 5,000 sermons on the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, largely they're about stories about God's provision, and that's right. That's, I think, exactly right. It is a story about God's provision, but looking at these clues and looking at the bigger context, I'm hoping that we can see that it's not just a story about God's provision, that it's also a story about what God's provision calls us to, what it invites us into, and how it should shape us, how it should make us think about how we relate to God and how we relate to others. And so I want to take a look at that. Uh, Let's take a look here uh, at a few details. The first detail I want to take a look at is uh, the location of where this story is. Uh, John 6, 1 says, After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Jesus, at this point in the story, has been healing and teaching for days. You could imagine he's probably exhausted. He's depleted. And in those times, we see there's kind of a pattern in Jesus' life that he will withdraw and kind of go spend some time alone and in prayer. Jesus is clearly an introvert, right? He needs to kind of recharge his batteries. Who's an introvert? Any, anybody? They don't want to say, right? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, Jesus kind of withdraws. Uh, Matthew's gospel says he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And the introverts can relate to that, right? Like it seems to be exactly when you want to kind of get away from people that people seem to come to you and kind of (laughs) further deplete you. Um, So let's take a look at the map of Galilee if we could. And this might give us some ideas. So this this is basically kind of the area around Galilee at the time of Jesus. And there you see uh, the Sea of Galilee. And there towards the top of it, you see Capernaum. This is basically Jesus's home base. This is his, uh, this is the kind of the, the place from which he does a lot of his ministry and kind of returns to uh, Peter's house is there and some scenes from the gospels take place in there. And uh, you can see kind of just across the, the, the top there, that Jesus is going from Galilee over to the other side. And it says that the people came from the towns and followed him on foot. So you can imagine Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee over to this pink area over here. And the people from the Galilean towns kind of going around the other way. You following me? So Jesus is going by boat. They're going by foot. And again, this might seem like a little detail, but I think that it's an important clue for us to know what's, what's really happening in this story. So across the Sea of Galilee are the foothills of the Golan Heights. And if you go there now, there's really not much to look at. But if you were there 2,000 years ago, there would also be not much to look at. It's, it is, as it's ever been, pretty much. Uh, it's, it's kind of high desert, sheer cliffs, very sparse. There's not a lot of, you know, there's some grass and stuff, but there's not, it's not really a place you can grow anything. And so this is kind of a deserted place, right? The gospel even describes it as a deserted place. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's beautiful. 
in the way that High Desert can kind of be beautiful, but there's really, it's a remote and inhospitable place. But this is where Jesus goes to kind of get away from everyone unsuccessfully. They go around the, the, the water and they go and they meet him there. Uh, <clears throat> so another detail here, uh, and we know this from the historian Josephus, that uh, in this Roman-occupied Palestine, right, in this... In this um, uh, you know, this is a place that is under foreign rule. The Romans uh, are, have occupied and o- oppress and kind of are the uh, cause of a lot of suffering in this area. And so there's, there's a lot of very anti-Roman, understandably, there's a lot of anti-Roman sentiment among the people. And among the people, the Galileans specifically were noted as being the most kind of seditious, Right? They, they were a lot of, of the armed rebellions that happened in this time were from Galileans. We know this in the story of um, in, in Luke 13, uh, while Jesus is doing his ministry in Galilee, people approach him and said, Hey, did you hear about the Galileans whose blood were mingled with their sacrifices? And that's kind of a cryptic way of saying it, but it's kind of a poetic way of saying they were killed in the temple. And what happened, uh, what we think happened here, because there's not a specific Um, extra-biblical reference to this event. But we know that around this time, uh, Pilate was um, implementing taxes on the temple tax. So the temple had its own kind of collection, and the Roman government was taxing that, and people really didn't like that. That was really, really a no-no. And so a lot of kind of about that specific issue, these rebellions would kind of pop up, and they would fight against that, and, and we think that that was, that was uh, Rome putting down a rebellion, that there was actual killings that happened inside the temple. But those were Galileans, and they're named as Galileans, and so this is kind of something that, um, that history tells us was the case, that a lot of these uprisings would originate in Galilee. And so uh, the Roman gar- authorities were always on guard against uh, such rebellions, and there were eyes and ears everywhere. So uh, if you were wanting to gather a large crowd of people uh, to act against the Roman government, you needed a place that was kind of remote and out of sight and away from prying eyes. And we know that this area across the Sea of Galilee was just such a place. In fact, uh, that same historian Josephus was part of a armed rebellion against Rome that was the, kind of the opening salvo of the Jewish-Roman war that took place that ended with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. That happened out here in these foothills, in the Golan Heights. Like That's, that's where that took place. So this place is known, and these people are known, to be a hotbed of anti-Roman insurrection. Everybody with me? Okay. So that's, that's the place. The place is a clue. There's also another clue that uh, John's gospel gives us, and it says, Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. And if you're not paying attention, you'll just kind of gloss over that as being mere window dressing, right? It just gives us, lets us know what time of year this happened. Except that... History tells us that Passover was a time when many of these insurrections, many of these rebellions would take place. Um, You remember that when Jesus is brought before Pilate just before his crucifixion, the crowd is presented with a choice between him, 
Jesus of Nazareth. Or another, uh, the gospel sometimes will refer, it'll get translated as a bandit or a murderer, Barabbas. You know that story, right? And the crowd chooses Barabbas. Well, that, the word that's used there for Barabbas gets translated to bandit or murderer, but it's, it's, a, it's an insurrectionist. It's a, it's a rebel. He's a rebel leader who's committed murder in the attempt to overthrow the Roman government. And he's being, these two kind of would-be revolutionaries are being presented to the crowd at the time of Passover. We know that that's when that happened. And so Passover... Uh, commemorates the time in the Jewish calendar of the Exodus. And so you could imagine if America was occupied by a foreign power, right? And we were an oppressed people group. Uh, That around 4th of July, right, there might be kind of an uptick in anti-authoritarianism or an uptick in our anti-oppressor sentiment. Uh, It's also the time of year where um, Jews from all over the place would come to Jerusalem. The average population of Jerusalem would kind of fluctuate between 20 and 30,000 people most of the year. But around the time of Passover, which is one of three pilgrim uh, holidays where people would come to the city, the city would swell to about 150,000 people. So it's, it's a huge uptick in the number of people that are there. And that would get met with a response from the Roman government. The reason why Pilate was in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion was because he was there to oversee the festival. He wanted to be there with his guards, with the, the military force, so that they could you know, hopefully deter and prevent any insurrections, but then they could also meet them if they happened to... To, to take place. And so this is not just a place where, uh, the, where, where kind of revolutionaries meet. This is a time when revolution happens. And so this is the context of this story. Jesus gets off the boat, hoping to be by himself. He looks out on the barren hills and he sees thousands upon thousands of people coming towards him. And Jesus is no fool. He knows what time of year it is. He knows where these people are coming from. He knows what they want from him, what they expect from him, what they might even demand of him. And you can imagine, right? Jesus is there with his disciples on the hill. Here come all these people and expectations are high. And, and the air is, is thick. It's palpable, right? This is it. This is the time. Look how many we have. And Jesus looks out on this crowd, and he knows this. And I don't, I don't know what Jesus is thinking. But we know what Jesus says. He turns to Philip, and he says, Hey, how about lunch? I'm hungry. You hungry? You need lunch? Lunch? They all look hungry. Why don't we feed them? And Philip goes, what? <laughs> How could you think of lunch at a time like this? Don't, don't you see what's happening? And Jesus is like, yeah, but I want to feed them. And Philip goes, uh, How? 
And Jesus is like, what, what do you think it would take to feed him, right? Like, what do you think? And Philip's like, I guess, oh yeah, let me just go to Publix and, oh wait, that doesn't exist. And even if it did, that's out here, we're out here in the middle of nowhere and it would cost a small fortune to f- give everyone just a bite. Like, how would we possibly afford that? Jesus is like, okay, good point, good point. Turns to Andrew. Andrew, what do you think? And Andrew's like, ah, I mean, there's this kid here who's got some fish and loaves, but um, it's almost not even worth mentioning, right? Well, what are we going to do with that? And Jesus is like, fish sandwiches sound great. Let's do that. And so he has everyone sit down. And I wonder if the crowd's kind of confused in that, right? They're there. They're ready to go. And they're like, okay, we can all right, sit down. It's weird, right? That's, I don't know. Who had ever heard of an army being told to sit down? But I guess. And they sit themselves, and the, the, the gospel tells us that they arrange themselves in groups of 50 and 100. Because remember, they think they're there to be an army. They're being arranged into troops and platoons and battalions, right? They think that they're about to get marching orders. And they're like, all right, we'll sit, but let's sit in these groups so that way, you know, that's done. And we know what happens next. Oh, and we also know the number of the men, 5,000. And it's not because the women and children didn't count or didn't get fed, but because in the ancient world, if if you're amassing an army, you want to know how many adult men you have. That's why they're specifically counted. That's another clue that lets us know kind of what's happening here. And we all know the next part of the story. Jesus blesses the food and he gives thanks and he gives the bread to his disciples and they give it to everyone and miraculously, there's enough. And here's the final detail I want to point out today. It says that when they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so nothing is wasted. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled 12 baskets. Again, this is an important detail, not just because uh, it means or it signifies that with God there's always enough. That, That is true. But more is happening here. Jesus says, so that nothing is wasted. Well, we know everybody's full. So what could it mean to not waste these leftovers, these 12 baskets of leftovers? Jesus specifically orders them to gather up all of the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Why? Because everyone's getting a doggy bag to take home. And maybe the crowd didn't like this, right? Jesus is like, hey, make sure you get a Tupperware on your way home. Thanks for coming. And they're like, thanks for coming. What? We, that's it? Just food? No, no, no. We came to fight. We're here for marching orders. But Jesus gives them a choice, right? They could either do what they set out to do and attempt to overthrow the government and attempt to shed blood and attempt to kind of reclaim the kingdom by force and by violence or go with something to eat to feed someone else. And this last clue here that that says, and this is also from John's Gospel, it says, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he again withdrew to the mountain by himself. They weren't willing to part ways. They weren't willing to disperse. They were like, no, no, no. We know what we're here to do. We're going to make you king by force. And you're going to be the kind of king that we want you to be. 
We've, we know what needs to be done. We just need you to be the figurehead of it, right? Because, hey, you can heal injuries. That's awesome. That's great when you have an army and you're about to march into battle. And you can multiply food also super-duper handy if you're about to mount a, a, mount a, 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 a wage of war against a superpower. Having unlimited food would sure come in handy. And this is the sermon in a sentence here. Jesus' biggest challenge wasn't convincing people that he was the Messiah. It was changing their minds about what a Messiah is. People were ready for him to be king. People were ready for him to be their deliverer. People were ready for him to be their Lord in a fashion. But Jesus had to work against what their expectations of what a king, what a Messiah, what a savior was. That was his biggest challenge. Uh, I, I use this, I'm going to go ahead and, I wasn't going to, I was debating whether or not I was going to. I'm going to go ahead and use this. I, 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 I used this example in my last sermon in Pentecost, uh, and I almost wish I didn't because it fits this one better. Uh, And if I were a better preacher, I'd be able to find something else, but I'm not, so here we are. Uh, This is the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth, right? This is early in Jesus' ministry. Um, And this is a few chapters before the feeding story, where Jesus is in Nazareth. He's, um, and he's been healing, and word's getting out. There's a buzz. Could this be it? Could this be the guy? Is this our guy? Is he the Messiah? And so you can imagine the synagogue's kind of packed out, right? It's a big Sunday. It's uh, maybe they're back to Sunday. They're serving breakfast again, and everyone's there. And Jesus kind of stands up, and he, and he walks up front, and he opens the scroll because they didn't have books back then. They opened by scrolls. And so he's, he's got the scroll of Isaiah, and he's got to go to Isaiah 61. And so, you know, if you've ever seen, you know, one of those big scrolls, he's kind of rolling it with two hands, and it's taking a long time, and everyone's waiting. He's looking for it, looking for it, looking for it, looking for it. Ah, Isaiah 61. And he starts to read. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and he went and he sat down. And every eye is on him. Everyone's waiting. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all go, I knew it. It's him. It's the Messiah. Yes, this is our guy. And he's from, he's from he's our hometown, it's a hometown boy from Nazareth. No less. I can't believe it. Awesome. Jesus is like, not so fast, though. He says, truly I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel and yet none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went his way. These are 
two stories of people deciding what kind of king Jesus should be. One of them decides, no, no, not that. We're going to make you king by force. And another group says, no, 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 not that. We're going to push you off a cliff. Them's are cliff getting pushed off words you're saying there, Jesus. You see, what Jesus is telling them is, hey, if you think that these promises of God, this day of the Lord in the future, is for you and not for them, whoever them is, in the day of Isaiah, or, or in, uh, excuse me, on the day of yeah, Isaiah and in the day of Elijah, or in Jesus' day, you're missing it. You're missing the point. God didn't go to the lepers in Israel. God didn't go to the widows in Israel. He went to these Gentile ones. And they're like, time to die, Jesus. They're over it. Just at the idea that God could be for those that we think God should be against. Jesus was saying, I can't be your Messiah if you think I'm your Messiah. Does that make sense? You see, we may be here convinced, as was the crowd, that Jesus is our king. But we may have bad ideas about what a king should be. To do what the crowd tried to do, to take Jesus and make him king by force, is to say that they were going to make Jesus into a mascot for their own agenda. A a figurehead for their own kind of ambitions or for their own uh, values or for their own ideas or their own ideals. And just in both of these stories, Jesus eludes both of those crowds. The ones who want to accept him on their terms and the ones who want to reject him. Jesus evades, he eludes them. And when we do that, when we bring our ideas about what a savior is, what a Messiah is, what it means to be the Christ, that he's for us and against the people that we're against, we're trying to make Jesus into a mascot and Jesus slips through our fingers. He eludes us in those moments. Jesus will not be a mascot to any movement, any party, any interest group, any ideology, or any ism. Jesus can only be as Jesus is, which is Lord. So how can I tell if I've made Jesus a mascot? Well, there's some questions we could ask. If you tacitly interpret God's goodness and provision as God's unspoken agreement with your beliefs and opinions, you may have made Jesus into a mascot. Conversely, if you presume that suffering and misfortune in the lives of others is somehow God's judgment and rejection of them, you might have made Jesus into a mascot. And if you imagine that God opposes all the same people that you oppose, like that those two lists somehow line up, what do you know? God's for me, and what do you know? God is opposed to all the people that I don't like. What a coincidence. You might have made Jesus into a mascot. I know that we're not likely to be tempted to form a standing army and mount an armed rebellion, but that doesn't mean that we don't live in a divided time, in a time of conflict. We're divided over everything, everything. Politics, gender, race, everything. Everything you can do, there's going to be, like, you can't post, you can't post anything on social media without someone coming up being like, well, actually... And just just seeing it as an invitation to kind of confront you about it. And there are voices in our 
world. There are voices in our church, not our church, but the church. And they're sounding the war cry and saying that you need to make a stand for your faith. But Jesus says, hey, have a seat. Why don't you sit down? These loud voices are banging the drums to rally us to form rank and file in line to fight in the culture wars. But the voice of Jesus says, hey, you look hungry. How about lunch? There's plenty. These loud voices will appeal to your fear and try to tell you that everything you cherish and treasure is under threat by them and that they are your enemy. And the only way to protect your way of life is to silence them. But the voice of Jesus says, what? Now, feed them. With Jesus, it's always forks over knives. That's the name of this title, by the way. You can see that up there. I love it. I love that title. With Jesus, it's always provision over conflict. It's always service over victory. We're not called to fight. We're called to feed. We're not called to conquer. We're called to take up our cross. And I know... I know that this sermon kind of lines up, it's a, a lot of what I preached last time, and again, if I were a better sermon writer, I would have written something different, but this is, this is the product of conversations that I'm having and things that I'm hearing, and I'm, it's the thing that I lose sleep over, uh, to be honest, as a pastor. It's the thing that keeps me up at night, is how divided we are and how irresistible it seems to kind of take up arms across those divisions, whatever they may be, and whatever side of those divisions you might find yourself on. And I'm not trying to get anyone to switch sides. That would be, what could be more pointless, right? What could be more pointless than to say, well, hey, I used to be on this side of the conflict, but now I'm this, on this side of the conflict, and let's fight. No, that's besides the whole point. We're not called to fight. We're called to feed forks over knives. Jesus gives this crowd this choice. You can take up your swords and your spears and you can do what you want to do or you can take up a Tupperware and find someone hungry and feed them. And we know what the crowd chose, but we have the same choice. As I said in the beginning, this is indeed a story about provision, but it's not merely a story about provision. Jesus is redefining what it means to be the Christ and, by extension, what it means for us to be Christian. We're healed so that we can be healers. We're invited so that we can be extenders of that invitation. We're filled so that we can share. And so it seems it would be, I, I, I felt the need in this, uh, the planning of this service to send you with something, Right? Because I want us to be a church that chooses forks over knives, that chooses to serve and sacrifice instead of fight. And so uh, people are going to be coming by uh, with some goldfish crackers, naturally. Uh, I couldn't do, uh, we, you know, I was thinking, how could we give them fish and bread? And I was like, well, what if we just give them bread that's fish and fish that's bread? So it's kind of... Two in one. You see what I'm trying to do here, right? (laughs) If you're hungry, eat. And if you see someone who's hungry, feed. 
This is who we are. We don't come to this place merely to be filled for our own sake. We come to this place so that we can be filled and so that we can fill. We can take what we receive here and go give it away to people. That's the kind of church I want to be. I don't want to be another voice of derision and disapproval in the world. And sadly, Christians have kind of deservedly earned that reputation. That we're just, we're just no people, right? That we're just, we're just judgmental and hypocritical. If the best we can offer the world is another voice of derision and disapproval, I think we're doing Christianity wrong. If our primary posture is the pointed finger of accusation or the clenched fist of protest and not arms stretched out in cruciform love, I think we're doing Christianity wrong. If we presume that God's provision and goodness in our lives is God's co-signature on our declaration of war, we're doing Christianity wrong. And I want to do it right. I want to do it like Jesus. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.